0: Welcome to the Hire Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. I am here today with the Managing Director of Techstars Austin, Amos Schwarzfarb. Amos, how are you doing today? I'm awesome, man, and it's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate
1: it, man. Happy New Year to you. Do you do anything exciting for the New Year's? Yeah, my family and I, we got away for about a week, shut all electronics off and checked out of life, well, of everyday life for about a week and spent a couple of weeks just with the family, which is wonderful. Who had the hardest time with that? Wife, kids, you? No, I had an easy time. I really needed to do it. My wife probably had the hardest time with it.
0: <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. I'm really glad you're here with us, man. You've got like such a fantastic background and experience. You have this amazing book that you wrote that I read that I want to get into. But I want to start here because I don't know that everybody who's Not in the SaaS space knows what Techstars does, right? So let's start there. What is Techstars, and tell me how you got involved?
1: Sure. Techstars is a mentorship-driven accelerator. Essentially, what we are is is early stage venture capital, but we deliver our investment through our accelerator, which is a combination of some capital and a lot of hands-on help for a three-month period. An a really extended global network. I think we have. 50 different people like me around the world doing something similar and literally thousands and thousands of mentors, which are people who have raised their hand and said, I want to help entrepreneurs be more successful. They don't get paid. They just come and they help because they want to give back. Or we say give first and then we because we're early stage investors and on the cap table we have long long relationships with all the investors sometimes we think board seats or advisory roles afterwards but we are technically advisors because we're investors really from the onset so that's what techstars is i'm the managing director of the austin program i'm about to run my ninth or 10th program i can't remember and so twice a year i have 12 companies come to austin from all over the world and we do a bunch of things but actually the very foundation of what we do is based off of the book levers and so we use that as the foundation and then we add a bunch of things on top around fundraising or other things that are very specific to each individual company. So, we're, because there's only 12 companies we can be very specific i was initially a mentor and an investor in the austin program this goes back to i think 2013 and then the person who had my role was moving on to a different role inside of Techstars. He's still our chief investment officer. And when he moved on to that role, he approached me about taking over his job and seemed like a fun thing to do. And it has been Yeah. Somebody
0: relatively new in this world, capital is great, but the mentorship in the network is really an exponential factor in terms of taking something to nothing. And that's just such a big part of it, that community aspect of it.
1: That is the value. Like the money's fine, but if you've got a decent business or you're a good salesperson, there's plenty of capital even now, even though people say there isn't. However, the ability to tap into a a really deep mentor network is 10,000X the value of the dollars. 100%.
0: 100%. I totally agree with you. What is the criteria that you look at for allowing companies in? I'm sure you have so many different applicants who want to be part of this. What is the criteria that you're really yeah, evaluating?
1: It's it, so my peers and I, like maybe at the highest level, we may talk about things similarly, but everybody's a little bit different. For me, I put the majority of my decision making around my belief that the CEO can build a meaningful business and I don't really care what their business is, and I take it one step further, I don't look at anybody's product ever before I make an investment because I don't care what the product is because I know it's gonna change. The market, I have to have a belief that there could be a market there. There doesn't have to be one there today, but that there could be. That is not always that hard to get to. Like I just look and say, okay, there's nothing there. Sure, I can see why there might be a big market. But for me, the biggest thing is, do I believe the CEO and the founding team have the ability to build a meaningful business?
0: Wow. So a little bit of a selfish reasoning here, but when you're evaluating these CEOs, what are some of the criteria that stands out to you about them? Is it obviously being data-driven, I'm sure is very important. Is it presence? Is it ability to build relationships? What are you looking for? Yeah,
1: it's all of that. I try to gauge that their sincerity and their genuineness and their honesty because I think these are things that are really important and there's self-interest or introspection, because I think these are important qualities for someone to be able to say, okay, we're here and we wanna go way over here. How do I get to the best path there? And I think for me, those are important qualities. And then I also look at things like, what is their track record for not just success, but through managing through things that maybe didn't go the way they planned. Because look, there, we all have things in life that don't go the way they're planned, but it's one thing to be a good winner, but are you a sore winner? If you've had some things that have been challenging in your life, but you've figured out how to manage your way through them and find yourself as being a better human and adding more value to the world around you, I look at that as something that will translate into similarly in business, when you're gonna have tons and tons of things that don't go the way you want it to go, but you're able to step back and say, okay, Yeah, I'm going to be a little frustrated, but more importantly, I'm going to look at this holistically and say, how do I shift something? My thinking, my process, my strategy, my tactics in order to get to the outcome I hope to have and the ability to say, gosh, the outcome that I was looking for, that was the wrong outcome. I need to change that. And here's the data that says why.
0: Yeah. And like you said, that's not just business practice. That's good life practice there. That's good life advice there, man. I love that. Did you move to Austin for Techstars?
1: No, I moved to Austin in 2008 and I joined Techstars in 2015.
0: Okay. I got to be honest. I love the city. Spent some time there. I'm having a golf trip there in February. So I got to ask you, it's such a great city. You've obviously been there for a while now. What, how have you seen it evolve over the last 15 years, either culturally or professionally? I'm just interested to know, like, how has it changed since you got there?
1: Yeah. It, gosh, in so many ways. And I've been coming here very regularly since... To the fall of 2000, because I worked for a company called Hot Jobs at the time, and we I managed in, I managed several offices, but one of the ones that I managed was here in Austin. So I've been coming here for a long time. I would say, gosh, it's just changed so much culturally. It's it's evolved. I think a lot of like the staple of what made Austin fun and interesting is still there, and now around it has come a little more of a cosmopolitan flair. I think the housing market has been phenomenal through the 2008, nine dip and and even now we're getting the better restaurants. I think that there's always been a lot of great live music here, but we're getting bigger and better acts. I think the people that come and stay are mostly phenomenal people. I don't think, you can't really make it here if you're not. Here's a unique thing about Austin that has not changed, which is that for a tech startup community, most everyone is trying to lift everyone up that's around them where Mm. in a lot of the other tech hubs, it's not that it's not competitive here, but the competition is, Oh, I don't want you to be successful. I want to be successful. Oh, you're successful. That's awesome. How can I help you be more successful? And that notion of a rising tide lifts all boats is really true here. And so for people, new people coming here, they're shut out pretty quickly if they don't fall into it. So that's something that hasn't changed.
0: I love that. There's enough to eat for everybody, right? It's not this mentality that I need to pull you down to be able to get up And that. Totally, I
1: love that, yeah. Very
0: uplifting. Keep Austin weird is obviously the mantra. It's such an interesting city in that it's the capital, right? It's what I would consider a progressive hub in a very conservative state. You've got the big state university there, UT, obviously. You've got the tech startup scene. It's an incredible food scene. I sound like a travel agent for uh, the Chamber of Commerce, Austin Chamber of Commerce here, but it's just a fantastic city. So
1: I love to see the growth. I love to see the development. All of those things. Yeah, I, I was talking to my wife about this a couple of weeks ago. And I think like I love Austin and there was never a point, maybe the first couple of years we were here, we were like, should we stay or not? but there hasn't been a point in a long time that we ever questioned whether or not we would be here for a long time. And I love it more now than I ever have. And there's, I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I grew up in outside of New York city and I lived in LA and San Francisco. And so there was, if I'm going to live in a city, there were elements of it being a city that didn't exist, but yet you can be downtown, which it's it's still not New York, LA, or San Francisco or Chicago, but it's, it's becoming a real downtown Yep. And you can be out in the country in 20 minutes and away from all humans. And that's really unique.
0: I was really amazed at how hilly it is and how green it is compared to some of the other, you think of Texas I mean, you think of desert, you think of these different things. And of course, I'm going to be cliche here, but I love Franklin's barbecue. My brother lives out there. I go out, we wait in line for a few hours every time to get some brisket right. when we go there. So there's just a lot of reasons. When I come to town, I'm going to give you a ring, man. Sure. I want to talk about your book, Lever. So I got it here. I know you wrote this with Trevor Bame and- This book is fantastic for business owners. There was a lot of aha moments for me. There's a couple of concepts I want to talk to you about because I think they're interesting. So one of the first things you wrote about, and you and Trevor kind of go back and forth in the book in terms of writing different chapters. First thing you bring up is W3. Who is my customer? What are they buying? Why are they buying it? How that sounds simple, like everyone's like, yeah, I got that. I can write all that down. How do companies get that wrong? Because you wrote about that in the book about how you're really missing the target when you try to answer that question directly. So tell us how companies get that wrong and what maybe the right way to do it is.
1: Yeah, and maybe I'll say it a little differently. Which is, it's not that companies get it wrong. It's that that the humans doing the work get it wrong. And there, and maybe wrong isn't even the way to do it. I would say they don't get it right because they think that a couple things. They think they know something that may or may not actually be true. They make a statement as this is the, what it is versus this is what I believe. Now let me go prove myself right or wrong. Yep. I think more so than that is the level of detail and specificity in answering those questions. as an example, this is loosely based off of something I say in the book. I can say, oh, I, I have a SaaS product that's aimed at hospitals, right? All right. Yeah. Okay. If I'm an outsider and I might say, great, I get your business, right? Or I roughly get your business model. But the reality is, especially as an early stage company, in order to be successful, you have to get to a really detailed level of specificity of the kind of hospital, who the buyer is or multiple buyers are, what are their profiles? And what I would like to envision is a long list of attributes for who, for what, for why, of all of those things. And when you have that long list of attributes, theoretically, if you if someone checks all of those boxes, they will say yes, 100% of the time. That doesn't mean you get yes 100% of the time, right? Because it's hard to line up all those boxes or even know what they all are. But that level of specificity, I think, I don't want to say that people get lazy, but I think people, especially at an early stage company, you want to move so fast because as entrepreneurs, we're impatient. And we want to show traction. If we have investors, we have to show traction faster or if we're limited on cash. And so they skip the part where they say, okay, I have the high level. I've got the next level down, but they don't go two or three or four levels deeper where it really matters. And if you look at the companies that are more successful, if you talk to the CEOs or the heads of sales of those companies, the level of specificity that they can talk about the who, what, why, and how their business applies to that who, what, and why is phenomenal. And when you talk to an early stage founder who hasn't figured out that they may use the similar type of language, but they don't have the data to back it up. They have the belief, but they're using the belief to drive them forward instead of trying to collect the data to prove that the direction they're heading is actually the right direction.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I'll apply it to, I applied this, I always, whenever I read, I always try to apply it to what, what works in my life or what works in our company. What are they buying, right? We have a services business that's been around for about 12 years. And the immediate answer is they're buying human capital, right? Whether it be one person, a thousand people, an executive, a contract, technologist, whatever it may be, right? That's what you would think naturally. But really what they're buying is reliability. They're buying the project management of the opportunity to, to hand it off to somebody else, your credibility and expertise to be able to qualify and identify people for them. and so. When you realize that, it changes how you put your presentation decks together, how you talk about your company, how you market your company, because that that's thats a really key thing. And it got me to start rethinking, this is not about the A to B service line that we think that we're offering. This is about feelings a lot of times that we're offering. And we got to make sure that we we drive that point home because that's what they're buying a safety and a security almost in, in working with a company like ours. Um, I think it's a great call up by you. 100%. Yeah, 100%. So let's talk about revenue formula. Okay. So I'm really interested. You talked a little bit about the different companies you worked at, business.com, Black Locust. Where have you seen implementing that cause the biggest change? Like just things fundamentally changed once you got that formula down and started living by that and working that and
1: iterating that. In in a business that I've been a part of, hands down business.com, which okay. is where I really learned about what that was. It was our CFO. We hired a new CFO. Brian Barnum, who had come over from rent.com and he brought that the whole concept of revenue formula to us. So I didn't invent that. And then he didn't either. He brought it from somewhere else, but he came in and it was one of the very first things he did was he said, okay, what's our revenue formula. And we all looked at each other at the around the executive table, and we're like, what, the, what are you talking about? took us a little while to figure it out. It probably took us, I don't know. I don't remember exactly three, four, five, six months. And once we figured that out, with the combination of some other things, including in that same time period, figuring out our W3, the combination of two things, we were had been like plotting along at about seven, eight million in revenue for a number of years. And then in, in a matter of 18 months, we were at 80 million. Oh, wow. It was just the combination of really those two things. But the thing that's beautiful about the revenue for those two parts of the revenue formula, it's beautiful. One, you that now know what are the real levers of your business. And the interesting thing about it is Once you figure that out, you look back and you're like, how did I not always know that? But it's not always evident in the beginning because you don't really know what your business model is. You just have a theory, which is why I like using that concept early on because when you have a theory, you can map out all of the things that will drive, will potentially drive those levers to a, a massive amount of detail. And one by one, you can start saying, I'm right, I'm wrong, I'm right, I'm wrong, I'm right, I'm wrong and prove or disprove your theory on what your revenue formula is.
0: Yeah, it's almost like if you look at things from a manufacturing perspective and things aren't going the way that you want them, you have a defect rate that you don't want, and you're looking at the problem as a whole, like, oh, what do we fix? How do we get to the bottom of it? Whether it's if you know every bit and piece of that manufacturing cycle and machinery, and when something goes wrong, you know how to tweak it or change it or turn up the volume and make it go really quickly or really fast, it changes everything. And it's so funny because in the book, you reinforce so many times, hey, this is a lot of hard work. Like you're going to have to really drill down and think about it. I'm laughing in my head because I'm thinking of a lot of entrepreneurs being like, oh man, if I can't solve this in two hours then I'm done. I'm out. Um, Not two it's just hours. Funny.
1: It's, it could be years. Months been, or years, 100%. 100%. Yeah. 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 I mean, we had a business that was around for five years and then it still took us six months to figure it out or whatever it was. I love
0: it. I love it. But you're right. Once you can solve and crack that nut, it changes everything. It changes the way you talk about the business. It changes the way you prioritize things. It changes the way that you hold people accountable and know when somebody's working out when they're not. So I'm it with changes you, the
1: things you do and don't do. It becomes really easy to say no to things. You don't waste time.
0: Yeah, I love it. Highest recommendation on the book. I love that I've started to implement some of the things here at our company. So really appreciative of you writing it and bringing it to my attention. And I'm glad I read it over the break. I got to tell you, higher learning is about how do the people who are best at identifying talent, how do they do it? Like, What's the magic behind it? We want to draw a thread between how the best at people at hiring do it and what kind of things do they ask and what are their experiences. So we're going to start here. You have probably been involved with thousands of hires or at least selection of companies to come work with Techstars and all the different businesses that you've been a part of. Do you have an overall philosophy on people that you bring on board, whether it be companies or individuals onto your team? And what is that hiring philosophy?
1: Yeah, it's definitely evolved a lot. I've been doing this for 26, 27 years, but I think there's a couple of things that I've always held true, maybe not always as consciously as I can articulate them today. And just before I answer the question, part of this is because I think this is how people have approached me, which is I often hire for potential, not for skill. Now, there's a few caveats there, right? If I'm hiring a developer or if I'm hiring a data scientist, Like skill has got to be a part of it clearly, but even there, like they don't have to necessarily be the best. So I do, I look for potential in people. I'm not sure, I guess if I tried, I could probably try to articulate what I mean by that, but I don't know that I really ever have. A lot of that is just my intuition. And Some of what I do there is I may have a belief about someone's potential, but I don't necessarily know them well before I hire them, or I usually don't know them at all. And so I don't know their gaps, and I might be wrong about what some of their potential is. So broadly speaking, if I think that they have a lot of potential, and I get just the kinds of questions that they ask or the way the conversation is like, how I I think I hope I'm not rambling too much, but something I look for is like intellectual curiosity, I was just gonna
0: say, let me opine a little bit here, intellectual curiosity and growth mindset. For me, those are people that have upside. Because yeah. what, you're not getting the static person that you're interviewing that moment. You're getting somebody that has
1: potential because that's, that's, they're going to continue to grow, right? That's right. And that, 100%. That's right. And I think going back to some of the things I said before, are people, are they do they seem like they're really honest with themselves? Do they seem genuine and sincere? Yeah, do I get it wrong sometimes? Of course. I think for me, that is really key because I know and I might apply myself to this, right? Like I've got areas where I suck, but if I bring someone on and I can, and I believe they have potential and then I can figure out, okay, these are the areas like, it doesn't matter that this is the work they should be doing. Like they're going to suck at this. I'm not going to give them that work, but I'm going to find the things that keep them excited and motivated and growing. And then there's another thing to that, which is, and this is for the business I'm in now, this is really hard because we're playing a very long game, but how do you give people measurable targets not so much so that they're compensated on those targets in fact i like to detach those two things but so that they feel like they understand what they're doing why they're doing it and how they know they're making some progress along the way progress is not always positive progress but they know because there is shooting here and i'm over here and i understand why i'm over here so how do i get myself back on track or figure out that this is the wrong target and move it that's probably the biggest thing and then if i'm hiring technical people i'm not technical so i have i'll just ask friends of mine to Check that. Out.
0: It's a simple thing, defining what good and success looks like. So people understand that and there's clarity there is one of the keys to management and understanding. And that's why you see the proliferation of OKRs and changing of job descriptions and all these different things, because that clarity is what ultimately a lot of times if there's ambiguity and vagueness there, that can lead to frustration on the employee's part, but that can also lead to you keeping somebody much longer than you should, or maybe letting go of somebody that was just about to break through. So I think it's a good call out by you. You mentioned that you miss sometimes. We all do. Right? there's nobody that's 100 at this so when you do miss is there something you look back on and you can say ah, I missed because of this or is there a theme there when you miss that
1: something happened So I'll break that apart there's the hiring misses and then there's the investment misses let's hear it. even though I kind there's a lot of similarities into the way that I'm doing it there the reason I'm breaking them apart is since I've been at techstars I haven't hired a lot of people I've had and I would say I haven't missed I maybe missed once which is I hired for a job. That I was aspiring to create in the organization, but our organization wasn't ready for it. It is now the person would have been great today, but they weren't when I hired them. That was a miss for a different reason. Wonderful human. I would work with them again in a heartbeat, just wrong. I missed the mark on hiring too far ahead. On the investments, and I had misses earlier on, there isn't really a theme. If there was a theme, I don't hire friends anymore unless I've worked with them for a long time first and I already sure. know that part of them because I'm too lenient on them when they when things don't go well. That's a, my- In thing. there. <laughs> on the investment side, I think the best way to describe the theme is there's something that has gotten in the way of me having complete clarity on my ability to assess the person ahead of time. There's something that's clouding it and it could be lots of things, but I've not recognized in advance that thing is clouding it. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, that was there the whole time. The thing is different because once it's happened, once I know to look for it the next time, the way that I'm hedging that now is I have a really phenomenal staff. And when they raise a red flag, I don't get defensive on it. We talk about it really. If I love somebody and they're like, oh, what about X, Y, and Z? I'm like, huh. And just because I love someone where in the past I might've said, yeah, you're wrong. Now you don't know, I know better. Like, actually, I often don't know better. I think trusting the staff that I have on on those things, and we're all really aligned on people being so important that we got to get that right first and the business will come if the people are right. Yeah, I think the key to anybody
0: who's really good at hiring is they have some someone or some people around them that will challenge them. And because it's never going to be, if you're only looking from your perspective, there's always reasons you might miss, whether it be the nature of the position, whether it be with the timing of where your company is at, or just some biases that we all have conscious and unconscious at the end of the yeah. day. So it's really important to surround yourself with people that will check you on that and challenge yeah. you. you I love that you
1: asked me a question. I, I, I've, if I've been asked that question before, it's been a long time and I've never, I didn't think about that question beforehand. But it's helpful to me as I'm about to start the next selection process, which is an identification of what might be clouding my judgment at this moment. I think I'm going to start asking myself that question.
0: Hey, listen, I always worry about anybody who calls himself an expert, but this is my passion. This is my life and you've been on 200 plus podcasts. So if I ask you a question that you haven't been asked, I might be doing something okay. So I appreciate that feedback.
1: This episode is brought to you by MSH, an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Contact them and find out more at talentmsh.com.
0: I'm I'm actually really excited to ask you this and it could be on the investment side or it could be somebody that you hired. But when I ask you to tell me about a memorable interview, right? Bad, good, you don't got to name names. But when I say that, does anything come to mind?
1: Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. When I, so, so when I started work.com, it, it was, there's a longer story here, but the quick story is it was incubated out of business.com and eventually we merged them together and I was on the executive team of business.com. But originally work.com was its own entity and it was just me. Running the business. When I was hiring my first person, I was hiring a head of product because I'm not technical. I'm not a product person. I am a salesperson and a business person. And it came down to two candidates. One who, on paper, was exactly what I was looking for, buttoned up. Like I, I don't know how, if you can picture like a product person who is classically trained and really metrics driven, and then this really fucking weird dude. Classic dude wrote me a really well, thoughtful, articulate email to thank me for the final interview. They didn't know it was the final interview, but to thank me for the final interview and whatever, what they sh- you should do. And the other guy, and let me see if I have it. I might have it right here. I do. The other guy who I will name, because he's amazing and still great friend to this day, Russ Smith, he wrote me a thank you note in green pen on yellow paper. <laughs> amazing.
0: Yeah, Um, you have it sitting right there too. That's amazing.
1: This is August 6, 2004. Jeez. I kept this because I love him so much for this. And I remember getting it and going, huh, this feels like so not what I would have expected from anyone. And I was a little more conservative. I don't know if I've ever been conservative, but more conservative at the time because I'd never hired a role like this before. I almost didn't hire him. And I'm so glad that I did. Not only did he help me end business.com, knock it out of the park. We've been in multiple other businesses together. He's like a brother. This is 2004, we're in 2023. It's been 19 years. It's been a long time. (laughs) The
0: fact that you got business.com and work.com as domains says it's a little bit, it's been a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So that's the most memorable one by a long stretch. And I'm going to tell him that after we get off, I'm going to text him and tell him that his letter came up. today. A big
0: time credit to you, man. I work with thousands of companies over the last 12 years. And you'll hear people who have these overt biases where that would have been a knockout for them. And you were able to see through that. 100%. Most people would not have hired this
1: person, 100%. And even I was like, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to trust my gut here because my gut says, this is the guy. Ooh, I love that. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. That is a great story. And I'm sure Russ is going to be happy that he got shouted out on the pod. Do you have a favorite question that you like to ask, whether it be companies you're investing in or perspective? For investing,
1: yes. For hiring, I don't know that I do. And like I said, I don't hire that much. So tell me
0: investing then. I'm interested to hear from an investor. Yeah,
1: for investing, it's going to sound really simple, but it is my favorite question. And I phrase it just like this. So you've started a business, whether you realize it or not, this is going to be the next 10 to 15 years of your life. Why the fuck would you want to do that to yourself? This is so goddamn hard.
0: Okay. And what kind of interesting answers have you gotten? Do people like bear their soul?
1: what, What they say doesn't matter. Like the specifics, it's the way that they deliver it. It's the thoughtfulness. It's the ease that it rolls off the tongue. It's How much of it is what they should say versus like them speaking from the heart. That's where I, that's the thing that I'm looking for. And the thing that I'm looking for is a little bit of passion and a lot of obsession. And that obsession, that's the thing that tells me it doesn't matter if it takes 15 years, they're going to stay at it. And for aspiring entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs listening to this, if there are any, if you think the business you're building is only going to take two to five years, you're Wrong, it won't. They don't. Not to say it hasn't happened in history, but it is not normal. The thing you're doing is going to take you ten to fifteen years. If you're not ready for that, don't take anyone's capital. Don't bring people on and promise them something that you can't deliver. No, this is going to be a long, hard haul.
0: What I tell entrepreneurs that I meet is that I met a lot, and I've seen a lot of people fail out and succeed, and everything in between. But what I tell people is a lot of entrepreneurs have the heart for it. They desire, they want to do this, right? They have the mind for it, right? They know what they need to do. The most fail out because they don't have the stomach for it. And it goes, just what you said, man, it's, do you got the grit and the tenacity when things are totally stacked up against you? When you're eating top ramen at night, when you're working so and so many hours a week and things are falling apart around you, do you still have the resolve and the desire to move through? Because most of the people that I see who don't succeed in this space, it's not for lack of intelligence or lack of desire, from lack of a, of the stomach to handle yeah. the indigestion you're going to get invariably when this yeah, starts.
1: Well, yeah, I agree with that. And there's two things about that. One is I have a belief that every CEO should either have a coach or a therapist that they're talking to weekly period. I don't care. No one will ever convince me otherwise. Like this is one that I'm absolute on. The other thing I to say is I was on a, a podcast earlier today and it was with an executive coach who has a podcast. And it was really interesting. Like we talked about stuff like I've never talked about on a podcast before. And it was almost like a therapy session for me. And when we were done, we were wrapping up and just shooting. The shit. And one of the things that he thanked me for being like way more vulnerable than he expected. And I was like, look, here's the reality. Like people listening to these podcasts, like if they need to know that it doesn't matter how successful someone is, this shit is hard. And you're going to have lots and lots of downs. And so we got into the reason I share this is because we got into a big conversation. He has some really high profile customers or clients, and all of them from the outside look like they're on top of the world. And all of them have lots of going on that is not great. And I bring it up relative to what you're saying is because it is being the CEO of a startup or any CEO of a startup is really lonely. You're going to have days, weeks, months, maybe even years that are really, really hard and depressing, even when things seemingly are going well, because there's so much pressure on you. And, you know, what you said, if people don't have the stomach, I think that is true. I think another way to say it is people, there's probably a lot of ways to say it. I think a lot of people don't realize what they're signing up for, that yeah. the majority of that time, 5, 10, 15 years is not full of joy. There are lots of moments of joy and the reflection will be on the joy, but most of that time is really hard emotionally.
0: Yeah. And I think they, they can say they get it and they know it up front, but until you're in the actual foxhole, there you don't are some know what it's
1: things like having like having a kid, like having you a, know kid.
0: You have a kid, same thing. Yeah, you can't tell anybody about it. You're gonna have to experience it yourself. You're gonna yeah. have to change those diapers at 3 a.m. yourself yeah. and not get Which any going sleep.
1: back to you asked me like when I look at investments in people, like I'm looking the things I'm looking for, like, how do they deal with adversity? Like if you've been an athlete and you've lost a bunch and you've won a bunch and then you've lost it, like, how do you deal with that stuff? What are the things in your life that you've not necessarily been successful in? how have you persevered through that time? If you've had a divorce in your life, like how do you know, how did you bounce back from that? Whatever the things are, if you experience loss in some other way. So I think that's really critical to said stomach, but like, How can you persevere through hard times because they are inevitable?
0: Yeah, I'm totally with you. The other thing, so I look at is how do you handle things when they're great and they're at the tippy top and you're feeling really good? And then how do you handle things when they're at the bottom? And that's your character ultimately in the day because it's easy to handle things when it's even like this. But when you're having great success, you're going to reveal yourself. And when you're having great challenge, you're going to reveal yourself, and it's not easy to find, figure this out during an interview. That's certainly not the case. But those are the people that, when I find out and I see those people in those moments and how they handle themselves, those are the ones that I know are keepers long term. And the other thing I got to tell you is, I figured you were on another podcast earlier. Now I'm feeling really competitive. I got to set the bar here. No. I feel like I got. I, I feel like I got to. Oh, I got to button up. I got to really close this out strong. I'm just kidding. So I want to ask you a little bit. We're going to get off the hiring a little bit. I want to ask you a little bit about a day in the life of what your job looks like. And I'm interested to ask you both when you're going through a program and then maybe when you're not leading a program?
1: Yeah. So I can give you a day in the life of both. Maybe like at a macro level, they look similar, but like at a micro level, almost no two days that are the same. In program, it's really three pieces, like or three sections. The first section, when we're getting to know each other, I like to think of that as like the data section, which is we're trying to learn as much. And when I say we, I don't mean just the staff and the companies too. We're trying to learn as much as possible. So we're having lots of conversations. We're Poking on everything. We're questioning everything. And we're trying to collect as much data as possible. And we do that a lot of different ways. The second part of it is taking that data and coming up with what we believe is a plan to move forward. And that could be anywhere from three weeks to three months to three years. And there's no right or wrong answer there. It's just what are the data we have and what do we need to know? And How do we have a foundation so that we can continue to use some similar type of format going forward? And then the last piece is the execution and packaging of that plan. So that's a combination of actually starting to go do it and if you're raising money or going to your customers or whatever it is, how do you have all the materials and things you need based on all of the stuff we've done to date so that you can be successful doing that? Every company doesn't follow the same timeline.
0: Sure. Right? Every company, every person if, you're working with is going to be different. Some have different people are in data they're...
1: collection until the last day and some people get there much faster. That's what the program looks like. At this state, stage, having done this for so long, I've got a hundred and something por- companies in my portfolio. I'm constantly talking to companies. What's the into-
0: engagement like there? Do you set rhythm? Is it more ad hoc? Are you coming into board meetings? Know, like, how does that look? It's,
1: yeah, it's evolved a lot. In the in my earlier days, when I, when I had 20, 30 companies, I had a regular rhythm and it was different from company to company. Sometimes it's weekly, sometimes it's quarterly, but a regular rhythm. I had to stop that, which is unfortunate, but I had to stop that because otherwise that is that i would be doing and i wouldn't spend any time with the current cohorts and then there's just other things some of that is pretty deep but then there's other things that abilities around the community and we hold events and we're recruiting for companies and so there's that happened 12 months a year we're looking for new companies and i'm constantly meeting new companies we're constantly meeting new mentors networking with investors so that we have relationships when the companies are raising money so it's lots and lots and lots of conversations with lots and lots of different types of people
0: yeah, that, that's really fascinating. I appreciate the insight. I think that a lot of people are going to take away a lot from that because knowing what you do and hearing it and you, you listen, you have to be somebody that has to be, you're just, you're conversating and discussing with so many different people and meeting so many different types of personalities and like you said, spending time in the community. So it's got to be exhausting at the end of the night when you put your head down, but I bet it's pretty rewarding too.
1: Yeah, I would say when I'm at my best, it's not exhausting at all. It's pretty invigorating. And I know that I'm either burnt out or reaching burnout. And it it happens when it's not fun anymore. And then I do things to correct for that, to get my energy back.
0: I love that. So in terms of any initiatives or companies that you can talk to, or anything going on at Techstars right now that you're really juiced about? Something that you're really excited about? Something you want to talk about? Maybe you have another book coming out.
1: Anything that comes to mind when I ask you that? There's a bunch of companies that I'm really excited about. A company here in Austin, Helperbee's, is just doing really well. They're out of my first program. And a, good, a really great example of a company that I bet on the CEO and the team. They were so early. It's taken them a long time. This was almost eight years ago. And it took. it's only been in the last two years that they've really started to hit the hockey stick. But that hockey stick is... Positively. What does Helper B do? They provide in-home care for people with dementia, elderly oh, wow. with dementia, and the models changed over a little bit over the years. But it's, they work with insurance companies, so that the overarching thing is, if a person can stay in their home longer than going to a facility, it's better for the human being in terms of their life and their longevity. And it's cheaper for the insurance company. So it's a win-win. And so the goal is how do you keep people in their homes for as long as possible by providing care in the homes?
0: Yeah. We have multiple clients right now. That is, it's either palliative care at home. It's, uh, we have a company Papa that we work with that is tying volunteers to seniors and spending time with them in their homes. We're working with telehealth companies. Healthcare is just changing so rapidly. And in such a really good way, I think in a way that you're not going and sitting and waiting in a doctor's office for an hour and a half, and then going and sitting on a chair and waiting for them to come in and take your blood pressure. I think it's really, really a fascinating space. And I love companies that are putting things around that. And we love working with companies like that. Because I just think healthcare is such an area that's ripe for change and transformation. So I'm gonna do a little more research on that company. That's pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. I got to ask you, so we tend to like to ask people about LinkedIn posts they made. So you made one, it's about a year ago now, but it's about your book. Floored, honored, and pleasantly surprised that 10 months later, Levers is still on the bestseller list. Thank you for everyone's support and to Cody Sims, Troy Hanikoff, and Trevor Bem for being on the journey together. I want to ask you about what it felt like. Because listen, when you put a book out, I know you have good intention. You think it's going to be good, right? I'm sure you did a lot of research beforehand or in terms of understanding how what the buying was going to be like. But to be there 10 months later, you didn't go into this wanting to be an author, I don't think. How gratifying was that? And obviously, I can tell you're you can read it off of here. Tell me what that experience was like. Cause I don't
1: See, We were a bestseller on our, on our year anniversary and we were, it kind of fluctuated. Some days were not, but even like as recent as November, that was the last time I looked we were, we could be today. I don't know. I, we, all of us did not write that book with any expectation that, that tens of thousands of people would buy it. If not more than that, at this point, we wanted something that we could hand to people because it was the same, we were having the same conversations over and over. So instead of having that same conversation, we had something we could hand to someone and say, if you want to work on this, we can help you and get it, take it one or two or three levels deeper. That was really the intention. No expectation of how well it has done. So it is really gratifying and really humbling. And I in as candidly, there's like a necessity to write a post like that because it's self-promotion. And I suck at that. I feel very uncomfortable doing that. But, <laughs> but I am very, I'm really proud of the work that the four of us did on that book. And I think that the proof of that, the proof is maybe the wrong word, but the- Validation. The, The validation of that is the number, like the crazy number of people, like on a weekly basis that reach out and I've never met before that say, Hey, I read your book and here are three things I learned that has transformed my business. And they're not always the same things. Although W3 and revenue formula come up a lot in general, it's pretty amazing. Like that to me is better than the fact that it's sold a bunch of copies is that it actually is helping people.
0: Yeah. I'm telling you firsthand. I read it because I just wanted to be prepared and know who I was talking to, but I got a lot of value out of it. So again, I give it the highest. Yeah. Value. For
1: those of you listening and tell me if I'm wrong, it is not, it is a very fast read. Easy what read. What makes it hard is if you actually do the work, It then it takes a lot of time. But if you're- If you read-
0: stop and start to build out and start to write down the charts and do the different things, you're going to take six months to read the book. But I read through it. And then I went back and highlighted the areas that I wanted to particularly, what can I implement now? What's more medium term? What's long term? And for me, that that's how I read most of the time. Is oh, and I come back and I reread and try to implement what I can. And for me, that worked really well. Yeah,
1: that would be my recommend. That is what I recommend to people now who are asking me. I'm like, just go read it through, just snap through it, so you understand where you're going, and then go back and do the work. And for those of you listening too, we have very intentionally kept the price, the Kindle price. At, I think it's still a dollar ninety nine. Oh, wow. We're not trying to make a. Ton of money on this thing. We really just want to help people. Go get you can go get a Kindle copy for a buck ninety nine if you want a physical copy. It costs more to make it, so it costs more money.
0: Yeah, I got a physical copy. I'm a physical copy guy. I'll probably be that old man in twenty years who still got a library of books. This this,
1: this guy too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Listen, man, I know you got to get to dinner, but I want to ask you one last thing. Okay, we have some listeners early on in their career, people who are youthful. If you had one bit of career advice that you could offer to some of our younger listeners that maybe you didn't have when you started in your career, what would that be?
1: I'm going to do it as short as possible, but it's a little longer. When I was earlier in my career, I naively trusted my gut a lot, but didn't have, didn't often have the data to back it up. And so I would find myself having to fight for things that I believed, but didn't understand even that I was supposed to collect data. Then I went through a period of time where I focused, I over-indexed and focused more on getting the data and ignoring my gut. And I found in that period of time, I actually made a lot of decisions that were not optimal. Now... I, my mode of operation is what is the first thing that I believe? What does my gut tell me? And then I search for the data to get it right. So the the advice is listen to your gut, but don't believe that your gut is always right. Go figure out why. Ask yourself the question and peel back the layers of onions of why you believe something to be true. Write it all down, collect the information so that when you need to sell it, whether you're selling it to an employee or to an investor, you actually have your gut, your belief, your vision, and the data to back it up.
0: I love that. And one thing I would add to it, because you can be in danger of confirmation bias. If you go seek out the data that supports your gut, look at a spectrum of data and information to make sure that you feel really good and confident as you move forward. Yeah,
1: a dear friend of mine who I worked with at Black Locust, Rob Taylor, taught me this way of thinking, which I love, which is once once you've proven yourself right, spend some time trying to prove yourself wrong. wrong.
0: I love that. That's awesome, man. Amos, listen, man, I appreciate you spending some time with me. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I can't wait for this to come out. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, man. Good to talk to you and we'll talk soon.
0: Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.